0: We did have an amazing interview. I have to tell you, she sent me the questions late last night that she wanted to pursue. I was so impressed.
1: The questions are really great.
0: They were very thoughtful questions. They pointed to someone who is a thinker and someone who is reaching for, you know, the spiritual ground you and I have talked about and worked on. She comes out from that ground, the the ground of self-inquiry. This is the perfect way to start your day, start your business, start your life, change your mentality, understand where your powerfulness comes from. She can help you get there. She gives great advice. She has so much wisdom, so much that you can learn from her. I feel more powerful, in control, and more creative after listening to Sabrina's podcast. I wish I were creating this podcast.
1: Welcome to the Success with Sabrina podcast, sponsored by Time Strategic Consulting Group. Hear from successful businessmen and businesswomen and how they became successful, sharing tips and techniques with you to foster change and build success with ease and flow, helping you overcome your toughest trials and biggest challenges to finally go for it and make money and create the epic life that you deserve. To get more information about our consulting, public speaking, and business success membership club, go to www.timestrategic.com.
0: Welcome to Success with Sabrina podcast. I am so excited to have as special guest today, JP Morgan. He is a personal development coach and founder of JP Morgan Creating. Through his coaching, JP guides individuals and elite creators in being more powerful in every area of their life and work by helping them create a life they truly love. Now, JP, thank you so much for being on the show today. And You're so uh, welcome. I'm wondering, because being a coach, how did that come about?
1: Mm, it's a funny story, actually. Well, for me, it's I love telling it. I think it's funny because I was a magician as a hobby. Uh, I did magic tricks in the street, kind of like in the, if you're in the U.S., David Blaine. If you're in the U.K., Darren Brown. Just think that kind of performance magic, entertainment magic. And that was my hobby. And So um, I spent a lot of time studying the psychology of the mind and how the way we think about reality creates our experience, and so if I could create a certain idea of reality for somebody, they'd see magic, and that was like something that I was really captivated by. And learning about how the mind works and how we can influence that, um, and then through that, it started to integrate and marry with my lifelong just of being an experience of being an entrepreneur. I've always had my own businesses, so sales and marketing and self, you know, being productive, self productivity, that kind of stuff was always my my interest and attention as well and then i started to see how these two worlds overlapped or about like so much of business and life is about the actions we take to produce results and those actions actually come from our experience of reality and our experience of reality is created through how we're seeing and understanding and so the the magic and the and the and the work started to weave together and at the, around that same time i started to, I, I discovered this world of coaching I was about 11 years ago And, um, and so I started informally coaching people, like just some friends and people that had been following me, uh, in my, my kind of travel blogging at the time. And, uh, after about a year, six months, a year of that, I said, wow, this is fun. And I made it into a business. And so I've been full-time for 10 years now and, uh, started off in the UK and now I live in Santa Monica, California.
0: Oh, so you, you're originally from the UK then?
1: No, I'm from Rhode Island in the Northeast US. So Uh I grew up in, in New England, but, uh. I spent 10 years abroad. I lived out of a backpack for three years, traveling the world, running my, uh, my web media company. Mm-hmm. But then I settled in London uh, for seven years. Um, I see. So I became a citizen and got, found, found myself a wife over there. And then, and then we both left. And now we live here in L.A
0: awesome you know funny story about uh, magic and uh, uh-huh. I used to do door-to-door sales uh, for a pest control uh-huh. company and uh-huh. I was hired to be recruiting other salespeople. and um, I was interviewing this guy and he seemed pretty confident and he was a magician right uh-huh. and so my supervisor was like are you sure about this guy do you think he can do sales it was like his first experience in sales and I was like I think he's really good with people he's very entertaining like I'm sure he'll catch people's attention at the door uh-huh. And um, and then you know a week went by and he disappeared right and the company was providing <laughs> <laughs> and the company was providing gas cards and he just took that one gas card and disappeared and uh, my supervisor was like what happened to that guy i'm like remember how i told you he was a magician well mm-hmm. <laughs> that's exactly what happened with him he yeah. disappeared so
1: <laughs> it's a, you know it's interesting cuz the funny thing with magic is that i found that most people get into magic because they have a fascination with power And, and uh, you know, and there's, and there's light and dark in it. A lot of the magicians that I met and and to some degree, myself included, um, there's a feeling of not being powerful. And if I could just learn how to control somebody's mind and make them see something that gives me a sense of power and power has been really one of the core, like, uh, shadows and, and seekings that uh, in my life, like feeling not powerful from a young kid being shorter. My dad was six, six, his name was John too. So I was little John, he was big John. So I had like this desire to be more powerful. And really my life's been a journey of kind of transmuting and alchemizing that seeking of power from fear into a, into a creation of power from love and in service of love. And I think something that you saw is what led you, led, led us to this conversation.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, like the the just for the audience here wondering how we we got to know each other. Um, I saw the video of JP on online on YouTube about his 100 hours being coached by Steve Hardison, who is known to be the ultimate coach. And I just loved how sincere and honest you were talking about love. I mean, not many guys are willing to, you know, go online and talk about love in such an open hearted way like you did. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, wow, that's a really cool guy. I want to connect with him. And so we connect and here we are. So I'm so excited to dive into uh, what we're talking about. And the theme for this podcast episode is you wrote to me. You said, Mm -hmm. everything we are experiencing and getting as a result in our business and life, including the lack of results, is being created by us. Mm -hmm. Both success and failure are created by who we think we are. Now, JP, I have to Mm -hmm. say, this is a hot topic. I love it. And I wonder how many of us entrepreneurs out there truly agree and believe with this, believing this. Um, Is it Mm -hmm. true? Is it really true that we're creating everything?
1: Well, I think that question right there is one of the primary philosophical obstacles to accessing your power to create. And what I mean by that is when we're in pursuit of absolute truth, we're missing that it's actually we live in a relative sense. We live related to what we believe is true. Our experience of truth actually generates our experience. And so for me, the word truth represents something that's stable, something that works, something that functions, something I can depend on. The truth doesn't represent some absolute knowing of something outside of my ability to know. Like, I don't know the absolute truth, but I live as if something's true because it's dependable. Like gravity is dependable and it's true. Okay. It's true until we prove that it's not like Newton was, his equations were true until Einstein came along. Right. And so for me, it's true within the understanding that it's true because I can depend on it and Mm -hmm. it works. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay.
1: And so, so in that sense, yes, absolutely. It's true. It's also a perspective, meaning like to summarize everything that we're experiencing and we're getting, we're creating is a way of focusing on my role in the dance of creation, which is, Oh, everything is co-creating. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, did I create my son? Yes. I created him. My wife had something to do with it too. You (laughs) might say she created him. Well, she didn't do it without me. And so the idea that I create everything is both true and it's part of the truth. So the part of the truth is that everything is being co-created by the unfolding of the universe and how I show up with my will and my expression and my action. But the reason I choose to state it as I am creating that is because it's not only an aspect of truth, but it focuses me on the aspect of truth where my agency is. And that for people at first can be very confronting. It can feel like, oh my God, that's burdensome. That's a lot of responsibility. But when you really get into it and you really access creating as your power, it's actually very liberating and very freeing.
0: Yes. And it it, bring, it gets us out of victimization in a way, Big which time. is really yes. important in creating the life that you own it and you're satisfied with it. Self-fulfillment mm-hmm. has everything to do with that for sure. Yes. Uh, so, but you know, one question that I have is because I spent so much time, I guess, creating some things and then also wanting to create more and more, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Trying to grasp and understand. And then I came in contact with so much work being said about letting go and mm-hmm. surrendering, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's so many amazing authors out there talking about how you have to surrender mm-hmm. and, um, so because of that, um, I feel like sometimes when we're thinking that we're creating, we get right back into the control of things and mm-hmm. wanting to control the outcome, especially of what mm-hmm. we're attempting to create. So, how does control play a role in the aspect of creating?
1: So when I use the word creating, I'm using it with an uppercase C and it's like and it's basically the name for this perspective, this philosophy. So it's not just the verb; it's like the proper verb, I guess you could say, like the name of this this way of seeing. And the control doesn't play a role. If it if it plays any role, it plays the role of being an obstacle to creating. Because the truth is, we can never have control, and it's thinking we can have control that actually creates a problem. Because then we're trying to get something we can't have. We are only. It's like, can you control the outcome of a dance if you have a dance partner? No, you have influence, but you can't control it because they have influence too. And it's an unfolding of the two of you together. If you try, you know, I don't know if you dance, but if you try to control when you're dancing, it doesn't really work too well. <laughs> if, even one person, right? It just it kills the dance. And it's the same in creating. And so it's not about having control. It's about realizing that you have influence. And, and then that influence is a lot of power. And so if you can actually, a lot of what creating is, is about learning to walk that fine line between, you know, between control and no control, which is influence and being at peace with having influence while at the same time not having control and actually not just being at peace, but, but loving that and starting to enjoy the dance.
0: So, so it's almost like a dance between wanting it so bad that you take all the actions towards whatever it is that you want, mm-hmm. but then letting go of the outcome in a sense.
1: Yes, right. yes. So for me, it's like it's, it's the difference between need and desire. -hmm. To me, desire is beautiful, natural. A need is when ego comes in, when fear of not getting comes in. You know, if a desire is expressed and active, then it's natural. As soon as you have a desire and you don't express it, it becomes a longing or a need, then it's like, then it's when it starts to create problems.
0: Yeah, it brings me back to the story that I heard about Oprah once that she wanted that role in the movie Color Purple so badly. Mm And she had auditioned for the role, and she was waiting for like six months, you know, for uh, for an answer, for a phone call, a yay or a an nay, and nothing was happening. And she said she wanted it so bad that she was almost feeling like desperate, like my life cannot go on if I don't have this. This is Ugh. I've never wanted anything more than this in my life. And then finally, one day, she she just came to terms. She's like, you know what? Um, I guess I'll be all right. Like, it's Mm. something that I really wanted, but I'm going to be all right if it doesn't happen. And that night she got a phone call and she got the call. I mean, the
1: more and more time that goes by, the more I actually am finding belief in myself, believing in it, working at some level, even beyond what we can explain. Like literally it's like some kind of energetic level, where the moment I let go of it in my heart, like the universe moves, things shift, possibilities open, you know? Yes. It's it's magical.
0: And it is magical. I love that. Yes. And what caught my attention when I was reading what you wrote is you said, uh, when you mentioned that who we think we are. So are you suggesting that we're something different than who we think we are?
1: Uh, Well, yes and no. I don't mean that who we think we are is wrong. I'm just saying that our thoughts about who we are, which you could call our identity is instrumental in how we behave, how we act, how we perceive people and our partners and everybody in the world, like who we think we are creates our experience. um, Mm -hmm. And who, who we think we're not creates our experience too. And, and and when I say who we think we are, I use that as a catch-all for like our worldview, our opinion of things, you know, our expectations. That's all part of who we think we are. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, of course there's parts of most of who we think we are is unconscious to us. Right.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: And, and and it's built on just ideas that we collected throughout our life, mostly unconsciously. And so, yeah, I mean, there's two levels to your answer because I also hear you asking like the more spiritual perspective question. Is like, am I somebody who likes to cook or somebody who not likes to cook? Is one conversation, but then, am I a body with that with thoughts? Is like a it's a higher level of conversation. And so, I think both of them are interesting for two different reasons. The question am I somebody who likes to cook or am I somebody who does not like to cook is interesting on the level of form and the results that it creates. Like for my wife for the last 10 years, my idea that I am somebody who does not like to cook was not a great way of her feeling served by me because she loves when people cook for her. Mm -hmm. But now the year of 2020 for me is the year of cooking. I'm cultivating the idea that I am a cook. I'm a chef. I love to cook. And what that's doing is it's creating a new form of relating and a new way of experiencing life in my home with my wife. I'm cooking right. for her, my son, right? And so, but then the idea that I am either of those things is an idea that keeps me hooked into form and keeps me from experiencing something greater than myself. And so, there's also the idea that I am none of that, you know, that I am something greater than that. But to even put a name to it now starts to, you know, bring you back into form. And so, to me, the foundation of all of this playing with self and identity is really not fully believing that I'm any of it mm-hmm. when I can fully experience and I can't even name what I am because at that point there's no more I mm-hmm. but when I can ex- when I can when I can experience that all this thinking and all this identity is just an illusion and just a story and that usually occurs maybe when I'm out in nature in the ecstasy of making love uh in a deep meditation and stillness when you kind of have that existential awakening you know where you're like Wait a minute, this none of this, not even thinking it, but you're experiencing all of that as just activity. To me, that's the deepest experience of truth. And to me, that's not like where I want to stay, I want to dance between that and form because I'm in this life for a period of time. So I'm interested in making something beautiful of the form while at the same time having that access to knowing that I'm none of it.
0: Yeah, I love that. conceptual, but that yeah. is beautiful. Um, I you know, it brings me also to the to the to the thought of who we think others are in our lives, yeah. right? And when yes. we put them in that box, there's no room for change, right? Mm-hmm. So it's exciting yes. to be not just open with yourself, but open with others that that mm-hmm. are surrounding us in our relationships. Mm-hmm. For sure, Thanks. I love that. So since there is a sense of openness um, mm-hmm. to who we are and our identity. Um, how do we go about letting go of the things that don't serve us anymore and creating a new sense of identity that resonates more with who we want to become, I guess?
1: So that's a great question. Um, and I love the phrase you're using, letting go. I'm a big fan of the work of Michael Singer. I mean, the Untethered Soul is a great book. Yes. And you know, letting go is the phrase that he uses. And sometimes that phrase is enough, like uh, just the idea of letting go. But you have to know what it is you're letting go of. So, the first step is like, what is the idea of who I am? The idea that I don't like to cook, I held on to my whole life. Like, it's just not my thing. I like to cook. That's an idea. But I've let that idea go. Uh, and sometimes it's as simple as seeing the idea and realizing that it sh- keeps showing up in my psyche and in my language and my speaking because I'm holding on to it as true. That's just, I'm, I'm choosing every time I speak it to agree with the thought and carry it forward. And so I use like the idea, like, you know, you ever go on water skiing or it's like if you fall in the water and you're holding onto the rope, it's like yeah. you're drowning. It's just, just let go of the rope. It's <laughs> like, Oh yeah, I know I'm supposed to, but you just have to do it. So you just let go of that idea. And it's like, okay, now there's a space. Now I'm maybe I'm not somebody who doesn't like to cook and I let go. And other times to me, the words letting go, the idea of letting go is hard because while we can intellectually see that it might be useful to not, agree with that. I believe that anymore. There's still an emotional involvement in it that's overwhelming and takes us out of our agency to just intellectually choose to not hold on to something. And for me, what I've found, the two two tools I would say that I've found to be most useful in letting go when it's emotionally difficult are the tool of forgiveness, which has a long history in all the religious traditions, and uh, a tool by a woman named Byron Katie called the work.
0: Yeah, I'm so I'm familiar with that. Familiar law with art. the
1: work, so yeah. I mean, if anybody listening isn't, you can go to thework.com. It's all free. She teaches you how to do it. Her book, um, "Loving What Is," is fantastic, especially the mm-hmm. original audiobook. book. Um, but so I won't say too much about that process. But it's a journaling process, a meditative process that helps you let go of an idea or belief.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But mm-hmm. for me, forgiveness. So I kind of use them half and half, just feeling into what everyone's accessible to me at that moment. But for me, forgiveness is. It's just a way of experiencing letting go. It helps me to find my agency. And the way I find my ability to forgive is through remembering a person's innocence. So if in order for me to forgive my wife for something, if she says something to me and it hurts, and if I remember, if I can remember that she's innocent,
0: mm-hmm.
1: then I can forgive her. And so how do I do that? Well, one of the ideas that I have is that actually, in some sense, because everything is just the universe unfolding, Everybody's only doing what they can do in that moment with your genetic predispositions and your neurological patterning and the circumstances that unfolded and what you had for breakfast and the way the wind blew. That was the only action you could have taken. And in that sense, you're innocent. Um, and so when I can remember somebody's innocent, I take a breath and I can say, okay, I can do the same thing for myself. I forgive myself for believing for 40 years that I don't like to cook. and i have to say it a few times to really consider that i'm innocent for believing that for so long it's okay and then the the act of forgiveness i call it unjudging Uh if you can judge somebody as guilty you can judge them as innocent which is an unjudge and that's all forgiveness really is
0: yeah and i love that you brought up like an example about your wife because it uh brings me to the fact that we live in a world uh, where we play in teams, right? Mm-hmm. So when I read, for instance, Extreme Ownership, um, in that book, it talks a lot about taking responsibility for mm-hmm. the outcomes of what happens uh, mm-hmm. in the creations of your life and what happens to your team. Um, so would you say that when you take responsibility, are you actually making people exempt from taking responsibility also, right? Right. Because if there is an argument and you're taking full responsibility, for instance, let's say with your spouse spouse or whatever, then if you're taking responsibility, then is that person exempt from the responsibility also or should you not be concerned about what they're doing with that situation and just really focus on yourself and what you can control?
1: I have two answers, actually. Um, The first is that... I think going towards what you just said at the end there, like that people actually learn more from who we're being than they do from the outcome our being creates for them. So if I show up and I take ownership with my son and and then he doesn't have to do it, I do it. I don't worry so much that like, he's going to learn that he doesn't have to do it because I'm doing it because he's actually learning in that, in that situation. Fine. He might be like, Oh, dad's doing it. Cool. I get out, you know, I'll have to do it but he's actually witnessing and experiencing me as somebody who takes ownership. And I think that on a deeper level, I'm actually cultivating in him an understanding of a way of being that's more powerful than that moment. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't worry too much about creating a victim by taking care of something
0: in their Mm -hmm. presence
1: that they might've been able to own. Um, My second answer is, I mean, I've read Extreme Ownership too, and it's a great book. I love it. Um, And I actually read it through... You know, an understanding of ownership as a stage in development, not the last stage. And so for me, there's victimhood, and from victimhood is ownership is the next stage, right? So you can move from being controlled to having control. Mm -hmm. But then you realize that the dynamic of control that you are choosing to either be a victim of or an owner in is not true. You can't actually fully own something. And so when you try to own something and to have total control, you're actually still within the context of control, which is actually a kind of victimhood in itself, because that situation owns you. I call it the the victimhood of ownership. (laughs) If If you've ever owned a house, you know that like, well, you don't really own it. Either you have a mortgage and the bank owns you or the government owns you with taxes. Like you can't own anything without being owned by it. You can't hook a chain to anything without being chained to it. You can't build a wall. To protect yourself from the outside, with imprison without imprisoning yourself, so all ownership is also from a form of victimhood, and so for me, the transcendent uh, experience is, is one of stewardship, and that book uh, that that word I've really have to honor the book, the Happiness Paradox by Richard Eyer, and he talks about the transcendence from control to uh, owner, sorry, from control to um, serendipity, and from ownership to stewardship.
0: Ooh, yes, really I love, sense. love that word. Uh, there's a book that I read, it's called Stewardship of the Heart, and it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And it was the first time that I even um, was introduced to the word stewardship, mm-hmm. and uh, and it just made me think about even my own kids and how much do we really own them, right? Yes. And the more we see them as stewards, as we are just privileged yes. to have them and to mentor them and to love them. Yes. Uh, we just, we, we relax so much as a parent. And I love that because uh, then we allow them to, to flourish and to become who they truly want to be and not some ideal vision that um, of what we want them to be. Right. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. So I love that. So we're talking today about creation, about creating the life and the business that you love. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So in this theme, Can you give me an example of maybe your life or a client uh, that you saw just beautiful creation happening right there? Something that it was magical in the sense that it wasn't even like thought of at first. And then it just really was created.
1: Yeah, well, right now, the way you're talking makes me think of my client Noam and good friend Noam, who lives in Costa Rica now. He's a, a Belgian guy. We met in London. And I was coaching him and he had this crazy dream to open a place in Costa Rica in the jungle where he could bring people there and to create with them. Um, and it wasn't exactly sure what that work would be, but it's like a creative work. And, um, and so, I mean, he didn't really even know that much about Costa Rica, never mind opening a business there. But we brought the vision to life. You know, we wrote about it. We talked about it. We spoke it out to the world, went and sought investment and he bought land. And he started cooking for people because he was living there. And that's just the first thing that was obvious and cooking for friends. And then slowly more people started to come around and completely untrained chef. Now fast forward a couple of years and he's the number one fine dining restaurant in the middle of the jungle in Costa Rica. Uh, wow. And he's one of the top 25 fine dining restaurants and open table to travel around the world for. And people literally fly from around the world just to go to dinner in the middle of the jungle at his little 12 uh, you know, person table restaurant um mm-hmm. and 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 it's it's you know what's great i just took an um a bunch of clients to have dinner there uh, at a retreat i did recently in costa rica and what they loved about it is that ev- is every point of it is just an expression of him artistically like he's like i said is an untrained chef and the food is so unique and so different because he doesn't follow the rules because he doesn't even know the rules <laughs> right the way everything Love works it's, you know I, there was I can't remember some of the ingredients right now, but maybe we can link to it in in the podcast notes and people can have a look at how how wild and crazy the food is.
0: It's making me want to go there. (laughs) It's
1: awesome. It's awesome.
0: That's great. And, you know, and in the process of creation, I think that one of the desires of our hearts uh, for us entrepreneurs and creative beings out there, right, is Mm -hmm. to live a more fully alive and aligned life. Mm. And, um, And so how do you go about guiding your clients to get to a point of being aligned and Mm. alive?
1: Mm. Wow, I love those two words together. That's beautiful. Alive and aligned. Um, So your question, how do I help my clients to do it is that my answer is I help myself to do it and then I be with them. And what I mean by that is, like I do my own work of self mastery through my study with my teachers, both living and dead, through the books they've left, and the writings, and the videos, and and through the meetings with them. You mentioned one of my mentors, Steve. Um, through being with them and learning from them, how they create themselves to do that with myself, which looks like meditating and journaling and self inquiry, knowing myself. Being one of my highest values is honesty, and taking that and orienting it inwards, like. How can I be more honest with what I'm experiencing right now, what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, Mm
0: -hmm. going
1: in, looking for, always looking for incoherence and lack of alignment internally. And then bringing that onto paper and out into my speaking and and actually challenging myself to to create personal alignment. And so then if I do all that work, that's what I spend most of my time doing. I call it product development. Mm
0: -hmm. Because in
1: my business, I am the product. If I just do that and then I just be with a person, When I listen to a person, when I'm with a person, I hear their thoughts and they come into my mind and I experience them through the filter of who I am and the Mm -hmm. capacities that I've developed through my own practice. And so I can experience an incoherence or a lack of alignment in another person to the degree that I'm able to experience it or see it in myself. And so as I can do that better with me, I can bring that ability to bear in being with others. Mm -hmm. And so when I see that and feel that, I'll just talk to them the way I would talk to myself. I just hold them to the same bar. I hold myself lovingly, you know, in the support of them, but just be with them like I try to be with me. And then they get to, number one, get the insight, you know, through through my sharing with them or lack of alignment that I could see or where they could do something differently. But they also increase their capacity to know where they're out of alignment, right? Because the conversation that we have starts to become the conversation they have with themselves. Yes.
0: If they let it in for sure. Yes.
1: Well, if they let it in, absolutely. It has to be an openness and a willingness.
0: Mm-hmm. And the self mastery that you're talking about, because we all have different areas of our lives—relationship, mm-hmm. business—and um, what is your take on, uh, like, if, if a person has desires and aspirations in different areas of their lives, mm-hmm. and um, and let's say business is not where they want it to be, and relationship is not where they want it to be what do you suggest they start fixing first (laughs) Mm. or working on or being more present with or whatever it is that you want to call it? Um, Does this usually happen in all areas of our lives simultaneously or does it happen in one area and then it reflects on the others? Like what's your take on that?
1: I think all the area, you know, we're a whole human being. So if we're not happy in one area, it affects others. If my sex life sucks, then it's hard to make money. Like it just, it's just true. It's just how it works. (laughs) Right. For me anyway. Um, And so I, would go, it's not like this is the right area. I would pick the area with the person in front of me that hurts most. Like what's keeping them up at night the most right now? If it's money, then let's, let's create some relief there. So it's going to be very personal and individual. And so if a person's listening to this and wondering where they should start, I would just ask like, what hurts the most? What would it feel most relieving to shift and to change? Because that relief will raise the level of the water for everything in your life.
0: Mm-hmm. That's beautifully said. I love that. Yeah. Yes. And um, so since we are in a world with other people, do you actually mm-hmm. believe in collective consciousness? Like, is that something mm. that you play with? How can you may, perhaps align yourself uh, to that collective consciousness mm. if, if you do believe in that? Well,
1: I don't even know. I mean, I have to, I mean, what do you, what do you mean by collective consciousness? Yeah. What does it mean for you?
0: So, you know, it's being said uh, by mm-hmm. mentors out there that you are the exact result of the five people that you hang out with. Right. Mm -hmm. And that you're either influencing or being influenced at all times. So in that sense that uh, the people that you spend the most time with uh, are the people that are going to end up determining some aspects of your life.
1: Yes. Well, in that sense of absolutely collective consciousness, it's not even like, I'm, I mean, it's just like, they've measured it. I wrote a great book by Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler called Connected. They're like researchers, I think, MIT and they looked at social networks and they looked at how, you know, not only the six degrees of separation, but like, and and how, but they call it the three degrees of influence. And so, yes, the people that you spend the most time with are influencing you and vice versa, it goes both ways. So I always say like you, your, your five closest friends are the average of you. Mm -hmm. So that's great responsibility. Like, you know, be, be your best for them. Um, (laughs) And um, the three degrees of influence means that not, it's not just your five closest friends. It's their five closest friends and then their five closest friends. So there's like all the people out from there, they're influencing you too. And even if you don't know them and you're influencing them. So we absolutely, we, who we are is the result of this collective in so many ways. Like the things that I think, my beliefs, my political beliefs, whether I smoke or not, my weight, everything. These things have been measured where it's actually being created through people around us so yes I believe in that and I believe that it's both something to pay attention to and your decisions about who you spend time with and how you spend time with them and also it's something to pay attention to in in creating a purpose for yourself and being great not just for you but for those around you that are being influenced by you whether you mean to whether they mean to be or not but uh, even but with collective consciousness too there's also there's other levels of of it where it's like it's on a spiritual level like there is something greater than this little I. And there is an, there's an energy, there's an unfolding, that's the stuff we were kind of talking about before. And that's where I was saying, I'm starting to believe more and more that there's a collective consciousness that's happening um, on a much greater level than just this, these influences based on our beliefs and our culture.
0: Yes, yes, which brings me to a question of, does everything happen for a reason? Is there is there a reason to everything that happens to our lives?
1: You know that's a really great question, so uh, I actually I can get quite philosophical. I identify mostly as a philosopher, um, and one of my favorite things to point out with reason is just because we can reason doesn't mean there is one. and so reason itself is a is a is a human idea. it's a way of relating to the world that human beings have created. Reason is not it didn't exist before us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So to say everything has a reason, sure everything has a reason if that makes us feel good, if that creates a reality for us that's, that, that, that we love. Um, so, but I think more important to the question, instead of looking at it philosophically, looking at your question pragmatically is like, is there, is, is, is stuff happening just completely randomly or is it somehow connected and related? You know, is there, another way of saying, is there something greater at work? Um, I recently, in my creating school, my community, um, we just played, you um, a 21 day serendipity game. So we have these growth games for 21 days. And and the game for this was to practice seeing serendipities. And a serendipity is a happy accident, something you didn't plan on happening that happened that was better than what your plan was. Yeah. So I planned to get to the gym and then there was traffic. I didn't make it. And because I didn't make it, I bumped into this friend I hadn't seen in 50 years or whatever. I don't know. So something great happened, right? And
0: had a great conversation, whatever.
1: Had a great conversation and make a million dollars and whatever. It's all the (laughs) great stuff. So so the reason that we played that game is because the more you can see serendipities, the greater your life is. Because then all of a sudden you're never disappointed anymore. Because if anything doesn't go the way you planned, like your plans are really just to set up the possibility for a serendipity, which is better than what you planned.
0: Awesome. It's almost like... I love it. It's almost like being pleasantly surprised, right? <laughs> yes.
1: I, so basically, what I'm saying is, I love living as if life, everything in life, has a reason. hmm mm-hmm. I don't know that it's true, but I love to live that way. That's the truth that I live in.
0: Uh huh. It makes you happy. <laughs> yes, very
1: much. That's it. <laughs>
0: Yes, but I want to go back to what we we're talking about earlier mm-hmm. about um collective consciousness and um and I heard you speak on that video when I first met you mm-hmm. um about love and how you experience love through Steve, the mm-hmm. ultimate coach, in mm-hmm. in, a, in such a new way. Um, and it was amazing and a learning experience for you as mm-hmm. he went about loving and not having so much distinction for who is doing better than you or worse mm-hmm. than you mm-hmm. and all of that, right? Mm-hmm. So as, as we're setting out to be the best version of ourselves and our goal is also to love, uh, but at the same time, we want to protect uh, what we're building here, right? So mm. we want to be cautious and and I guess selective of the people that we spend time with. Um, so so how do we go about loving people and allowing them to be part of our lives? but yet still being selective and allowing a little bit of that judgment to step in. And I guess you spoke earlier about the congruence of things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so how, what would you say that's the, a good balance between that timeline? Yeah, no.
1: Good question. I got you. Um, so for me, there's two different reasons why I could say no to somebody. I could say no to them because I'm afraid or, they, or I could say no to them because I'm expressing love. You know, like um, I had a guy that asked me to get coffee and I said, no, because I love you and I love myself and I love what I'm committed to. And I know that if I spend time with you having coffee, nothing productive will come from that based on how you've shown up all these other times in our dialogue. And I would love you to show up differently. And here's what I'd love you to do. And it's like, it's not, it's not, no, fuck you. I don't have time for you. Like it's aggressive fight. It's like, oh, not, not like avoiding, just like just speaking my truth because of what I would love for me and what I would love for you, because of the possibility that I see. Mm-hmm. So it's really why, why I'm saying what I'm saying. The best distinctions that, we, that we've created in Creator Circle, my group coaching program, is um, allow everything, accommodate very little. Allow everything, accommodate very little. And so allowing is what I do with my heart. And accommodation is what I do with my time and space out there in the physical world. And so no matter what anybody is doing or saying, I'm not going to resist it. I'm not going to judge it. I'm just going to allow it. Like, it's okay. It's okay in my heart. When it comes to accommodating, like, it's okay that you want to hang out with me. <laughs> and I'm not going to accommodate it because I've only got so much time for that. Or, I'm, you know, I'm not going to accommodate working at that fee because this is how much I want to be paid for my time. Mm-hmm. I allow you wanting that. I don't feel judged. I'm not judging you. I'm not judging myself as not worth more. I'm just not accommodating it.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: it's really a taking, because oftentimes I think people combine these. They think that it's just one thing. Resist it in my heart and say no to it on the outside or agree with it in my heart and say yes to it on the outside. But you mm-hmm. can actually s- separate these two. You can say yes to everything in your heart, which means like you're you're relaxed. It's easy. But on the outside, you can uh, can accommodate very little.
0: I love that. So say that again. So it's, it's a decision made based out of fear or based out of love. Yeah. Right? A decision made and action
1: taken. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so when you are allowing everything, you are then able to act from love and you can take the action of saying, yes, I want to accommodate that. I want to accommodate this person in my life. I mean, I've used this with people that have, you know, stopped accommodating family members in their life, like mothers and brothers. They stopped accommodating family members in their life from love, and mm-hmm. they feel at peace with it. You know, mm-hmm. and other times it was like, once they started allowing this person in their heart instead of resisting them, they could have them in their life because they weren't so bad anymore. <laughs> it's like, oh, they weren't. It wasn't that bad. I was just resisting how they were. I had a judgment about them. And so when I forgave them and allowed, suddenly it was okay to accommodate them. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And also, it's it's so it's easier to say no from love when you're allowing that's the, I think the most important point to your question.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So going back to creating the life that we truly love, um, Mm -hmm. how important is to have a vision? So I, I, you know, I get it. Like, you know, we're being very philosophical here on this episode. Mm -hmm. I hope that the philosophers out there are going to appreciate it. And the ones that like more pragmatic stuff, maybe we can get, you back on here at another yeah. episode where we really give some tips and techniques and tricks to people mm. on how to change their life. But I love mm-hmm. that we're, we're actually really working on the mindset because it mm-hmm. starts there. It's um, the highest one.
1: leverage. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, exactly. So in the creation of the life that we truly love, um, sometimes having a vision is helpful, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, yeah. What's your take on that? Is that like, the, like you gotta have a vision.
1: I mean, there's no got to in me. There's no have to. There's no got to. There's no need to. There's no should. There's no must. Um, all of that is in the dynamic of ownership and control, right? And so, I, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm saying that not to be nitpicky, but because I'm very attentive to language and the experience that it creates, right? And it's unwritten on my office door. It's closed right now, but it says Abracadabra, which is Aramaic. We know it as Abracadabra in, in English, but it's Aramaic for "I create as I speak." And so the language or the words we're using, they're casting spells of experience that, you know, this is where I said my work comes from This is Mm. literally how we create our our world. Uh, And so, um, I don't even remember what you asked, but I know that I, asked, I asked, got to
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> you got stuck there, right? There you yeah. go. We could let it out. I got stuck there.
1: It's, it's just like, to me, that was even more important than the question, And but now now the question's important. Now the question's important.
0: <laughs> so the question was about having a vision. And yes. do you, oh, yeah. you want to have a vision then? Or yeah, no? Yeah. there's no should.
1: No so Don't you, on yourself.
0: going to yeah. I'm going to let you ask yourself this
1: question. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. Would it be useful to have a vision?
0: There you go. Perfect.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. To me, it's very useful to be able to see what I want to create. Because when I can see what I want to create, I can feel what I want to create. And when I can feel what I want to create, my body moves in the direction of that, right? So it's like the there's the idea, then there's seeing it, and there's feeling it. And then I actually can live and be an expression. Of that thing now. So for me, it's very important. Um, I'm not just, I just don't know that it's necessary. I mean, there's people that create from flow and they shoot from the hip and things unfold. And do they not have a vision? I don't know. It's tough to say. Maybe they do, they just don't realize it because they're just operating so present to that possibility. And maybe the vision's unfolding as they're creating. I don't know. But I love to imagine use my imagination, I love the process of Walt Disney, imagineering, you just freely imagine, go on a walk, sit and meditate, whatever, and then write stuff down and, and you know capture it, even if it's kind of messy, and then kind of, you know, clean it up and make it something clear and solid, then bring it to life.
0: And I love that you went there actually, because I think it sets people free from this idea that they're not good enough if they don't have a vision. Because sometimes that vision is not that clear, right? Right, Oh, Especially absolutely, when- yeah. Especially when you're creating a life, a path that has never been done before. Right. right. And so there's a lot of anxiety that comes, I feel, from people sometimes when they're so stuck with like, I got to know where I'm going, otherwise yeah. I won't know where I end up or, so, you know.
1: I love that you pointed that out. Because if you had said, do we need a clear vision, I wouldn't have even gone down the need, got to, have to, or just been like, no, because <laughs> a, the vision's never clear at the beginning. Like all I need, if I'm in like the middle of the darkness, all I need is like a little tiny speck of starlight in the distance. Mm-hmm. And if I move towards that, every step that I take, it gets a little bit brighter. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm in the fog, every step that I, I just have a little bit of direct, just some sense of which direction do I go and then move towards that. The movement actually creates clarity. It lifts the fog. Mm-hmm. And so you don't need to, definitely don't need a clear vision. You just need mm-hmm. some sense of a vision that can give you direction to get you to move. The only point of a vision is to get you into action. Uh-huh. it's going to change. You'll never end up where you thought you would, you would. never because
0: life is happening. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, so just to end our amazing session here, I could mm-hmm. talk for you for hours. Um, but I do want to touch a little bit more about love because mm. I think that, uh, this is something that it's a conversation needs to happen more often, I think. Mm. And, um, And if you could share with us all the journey towards love and maybe go back to a little bit what you learned from Stephen and how Mm. you were able to come to terms in your own life um, in this journey towards love. And does that mean that that makes you a more sensitive guy? Like, is that.
1: Um, I don't know does it make me more sensitive guy to, to be more loving? I I guess it does because, you know,
0: because there's a sense of like, you know, this, I I think that, you know, guys, especially, you know, we're all raised with um, cultural. Yeah. 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 And there's this thing about, you know um, I remember I was in in session with, with uh, one of my clients and he was a man and, you know, and, and he said something and and it just like, to me, it was like, wow, you know, there is that there's that Mm. because he said, you know, like, well, I don't mean to, you know, be all sensitive and things like that, but, you know, like, and so he was yeah. almost like embarrassed for like having yeah. these feelings and, you know, and, and to me, you know, being a woman and being so in touch with uh, mm-hmm. my feelings and I actually welcome them. I love them, you know, yes, 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 <laughs> yeah. So learning that, you know, not everyone is comfortable with that. And, um, and there's that sense of I have to be masculine and strong and I have to be a man. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, look. I. I guess right now what I. What I'm seeing is that actually I have to go back to my father. You know, my dad's dad. Um, he was in the Navy in the war, a gunner on the warship in World War II, and like you know, just a just a classic guy from that from that era. And he didn't tell my father that he loved him until he was on his deathbed in his 60s for the first time. And my dad made a decision consciously that he was going to tell me he loved me every day from the day I was born. And he always has, you know, I was growing up, I was, my dad's a big, big dude. He was a cop, six foot six, you know, huge guy, very macho. But also I think he just, I, he, he made a decision to be more in touch with his emotions than maybe his dad was. And and so I grew up with a dad that, you know, I saw cry mm-hmm. and, and he never really shamed me for having emotional experiences. Um, and so I was lucky in that sense. And, you know, I've since, cultivated that and developed that. I had a mother that loved unconditionally. I can't think of a time in my life where she put a condition on her love. I grew up watching Mr. Rogers every day, which is a huge influence on my life, Fred Rogers. Uh, and so I've had some lucky experiences growing up, you know. Um, but certainly since, uh, I think, you know, I mentioned the beginning, my whole life's been a pursuit of power. It's also been the pursuit of unconditional love and the, the fear aspect of like, I want to be loved without conditions, And realizing that I can have that by loving unconditionally and learning to give that love and, and I can love myself. And so I've certainly been over the years becoming more and more in touch with love, um, but I got a lucky start. And, you know, I'm very consciously aware that it's not, my experience isn't like most men and I end up in lots of conversations with men. I had a client here recently, and I was just teaching him how to cry like a man, right? It's like, wait, what does that mean? It's like, that's a contradiction. No, cry like a man, like put your shoulders, keep your shoulders back, keep your chin up, don't collapse, take a deep breath and let the tears stream down your face. There's actually nothing more powerful and strong than a man who's willing to let his emotions pour out of his eyes, to let himself sob, and at the same time to keep his shoulders back and his chin up. It says like, I'm crying and that's okay and I can handle it. Right, which is different than total collapse, or different than just trying to hold it all back and hide. It's like an internal fear of flight response,
0: yeah. And I love that you said that because you know, crying like a man should also be learned by women, (laughs) 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 you know. uh, Because also, I think you know, letting go of the drama, right? Because as much as the man tries to suppress those feelings and you know, learning to cry like a man, you know, keep your shoulders up and your head up, and you know, it's up right now welcome these feelings because you know we're gonna yes. get through this right the same yes. thing is with the with the women you know maybe to you know let go of all of that drama that comes with the emotions right and yeah. just like let the feeling you know the wave of the feeling come in and out uh, without yeah. creating so much of a show right yeah <laughs>
1: I'll leave that work to you right now I think that uh, <laughs> it's, uh,
0: you
1: know it's, in my best work is in helping I think more of it to be expressed you know we can worry about containing it later. You know, and I could get into the cultural, social. You know, the whole Me Too campaign is a great, great thing for that reason. Let it be messy, and then we'll figure out how to, how to, how to organize it later. So,
0: yes, yeah, yeah.
1: Cry first, and then man up after.
0: Does <laughs> or, that make sense? Or create the little drama first, and then you know, yes. and then come to terms later. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or find other areas of your life that you can channel that energy. Right? The oh, drama yeah. energy. And then mm-hmm. you know, and that way you still you're still, you know.
1: Using it some productively, some other way, yeah, for sure.
0: There you go. Love it. <laughs> awesome. JT, it's been a pleasure to
1: Oh Sabrina, thank to you so much.
0: You I am so excited to put this out there to everyone to learn how to cry and learn how to live and create the life and business that you love. So awesome. Thank you so much. It's been thank a pleasure. righty. bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today. To join our free Facebook group and access the links and resources mentioned in the shows and much more, go to www.sabrina-gagnon.com. That is G-A-G-N-O-N. You will become a member of a private Facebook group dedicated to providing the best practices, skills, and strategies to grow your business. And remember, we all have natural advantages that comes from our instinctive power. You are perfectly created to accomplish so much. Let's challenge the status quo and create a business and life you love.